Hey friends, this is Michael Bohm with Youth Apologetics Training. Uh, today we're going to have a guest. Actually, we're going to have a bunch of guests. We're going to be talking with uh, Robert Lawrence. Now, this is the podcast I mentioned a week ago. I warned you about it because uh, the audio was really bad. I apologize. Um, this will be as far as audio quality goes. This is the worst one I've done yet. The content is fantastic, but the audio, not so much. Uh, Robert Lawrence is all the way down in Mexico. Uh, we were. This was a very unique podcast. We, re we recorded this podcast with a room full of college-level Calvary Chapel students from Joshua Springs. And uh, Robert Lawrence was teaching the class uh, at his, and forgive me if I mispronounce this, uh, Bana de Cristo Institute of Biblical Theology. And so, in a sense, uh, Robert Lawrence mainly and me as kind of a sidekick, uh, helped teach this class of, of college-level Calvary Chapel students as kind of an interesting uh, um, arrangement that we had. It was a lot of fun, but yes, uh, because we were uh, talking between the United States and Mexico, Robert was using a magic jack with a three- G network and so things were very slow and there was some funky sounds that kind of happened throughout the podcast uh, so yeah I do apologize about that but it is what it is the content is really good we're going to be talking about Roman Catholicism but more importantly uh, how do you reach Roman Catholics in Mexico uh, it's a different spin on things and to be honest I didn't realize that uh, the local Roman Catholic beliefs in Mexico are actually a little different. So we're going to hear a little bit about that too, and, and you will be fascinated. And so a little bit about Robert Lawrence. Uh, he, Like I said, he is the full-time faculty and founder of, oh, here we go, I'm going to mess this up too, Escuela Superior de Teologia and Banna de Cristo Ministries. Uh, he's the Dean of Undergraduate Studies. Uh, a little bit about this, this school. They teach theology and uh, vocations, uh, and there is no tuition. So it's kind of an interesting setup they have. Uh, there is this element of working your way through college while at the same time uh, getting your college credits in. You can check his website out uh, at banadecristo.com. I'm going to spell that uh, B-A-N-A-H-D-E-C-R-I-S-T-O.com. Banadecristo.com. So anyway, with that, let's go ahead and jump on in. Uh, again, yes, this is going to be a different style of interview, but let's just go ahead and do this. Okay. Well, uh, hello, friends. Greetings from Colorado. This is uh, my name is Michael Bohm, and uh, I'm with Youth Apologetics Training. Now, uh, yeah, some of you have probably heard the word apologetics before. Maybe some of you haven't. It, it basically means the defense of your faith. Okay, making a defense. And uh, my podcast is generally about uh, worldviews, uh, Christianity, our doctrine, other people's worldviews, uh, creation, evolution, uh, these types of topics all around defending the faith. And, and so tonight, Robert and I will be talking about Catholicism and how to share your faith in Mexico. Um, and I didn't realize this, but the version of Catholicism that's local to Mexico is a little different than what you get in the United States. Um, I didn't know that. And so that's what Robert and I are going to be talking about tonight. Now, Robert is going to be doing most of the heavy lifting. I'm just the guy that asks the questions. <laughs> and, and so anyway, uh, yeah, let's just let's go ahead and just jump right in. Um, Right. Robert, so, okay, tell me about the differences between the typical beliefs of Catholicism in the U.S. versus Catholic beliefs in Mexico. Well, the the Catholics in the U.S. tend to be like Irish Catholic and, you know, something European more Catholic. And the, when they came over, obviously when the immigration, when they migrated over, 
the the what they brought with them was a staunch Catholic theology, and so these are people that are already staunch Catholics, and there's very little there was very little conversion done by them except other Europeans. So there's not much changeover from the European. Mexico was very different in the sense that when the Catholics came over from Mexico, the majority of them were just monks and priests that came over, and they would proselytize to some of the Spaniards. Now, there are some Spaniards that hold to a, a Spaniard form of Catholicism. I mean, in the you still get the Spaniards who uh, migrated over to Mexico, the conquistadors, um, who have brought the Spaniard type of Catholicism with them, and that still exists in a little bit today, but really the most prominent, because Mexicans are a mix of Spaniard and Indian, um, because of that mix, what you get is Catholics who are converted from Indian. And the reason that's different is because you get Europeans who have come over and brought the full European brand of Catholicism into the United States, and there's not much change from that. And those have to do with what we'll be talking about in a minute, the Franciscans and Franciscans and the Jesuits. Uh, the Franciscans had a different approach to it. So basically what resulted wasn't just a bringing in of the Spaniard version of uh, Catholicism, but a conversion of the Indians. And that makes a huge difference on it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so um, you, you brought up the Franciscan and the, well, okay. In the U.S., the Roman Catholic Church has more of a Jesuitical influence to their faith. Now, in Mexico, like you just mentioned, there's more of a Franciscan um, influence. They were more successful here. So, so, okay, what are the similarities and differences between the two? Those are two pretty interesting movements right there, and many people don't really know anything about those. Yeah, I mean, the the Pope that's in there right now is Jesuit, and they their simplicity, their monks that are focused on separatism, and they're very, very big on, you know, you keep to the essentials, you keep to the fundamentals, you keep the traditions, and these things are essential in order to practice Catholicism. And basically, they looked for converts who wanted to become monks and priests. They weren't looking so much to convert the masses. The Franciscans, on the other hand, they were more interested in evangelism and converting the Indians. Um, the Jesuits kind of took the approach to where if you don't understand the spiritual truth of Catholicism, then you're a native beast that's unable to comprehend God. And so they would try and civilize them to the point to where they can understand. This is the perspective they have. It's a horrible perspective, but it's the way they had it. So they would try and get them civilized and become like Europeans and civilized understand God. And they totally dismissed the fact that just because Indians worshipped you know, nature at the time and things like that doesn't mean they had no concept or the ability to understand God. I mean, Romans 1 is clear about that, that everybody has the ability to comprehend there is a God. So, but they dismissed that out hand. The Franciscans, on the other hand, because their focus was evangelism, um, they were far more accepted of natives. And in fact, when the conquistadors really came in there to make it a money thing, more than anything else in Mexico, and, you know, the mission is a great movie on that, um, if you can overlook, like, some of the things in there, but the mission is a really great movie that depicts exactly how that went. Well, the Franciscans were the one that took the side of the natives, natives against the conquistadors. And basically they would say, okay, we have a city that's protected by the Pope over here, and the natives, you're willing to, you're, you're welcome to come here, be a part of the Catholic Church, live in our Catholic community, and we'll protect you from the conquistadors. And they couldn't do anything for a long time against against the Pope and the Church. Eventually, they weren't able to. The conquistadors were able to use the influence of the king over the Church. But when they converted the natives, the thing that they did that's unique about it is they had the perspective of, it doesn't matter what you do, it just matters why you do it. They were all about just the motives of the heart. It wasn't about the traditions and the rituals and the ceremonies. It was about why you did it, where your heart was with it. So they were much more successful in the sense that they were able to get people to come in and become Catholics without ever stopping the rituals. So all the native Indian rituals that had gone on for centuries, they just got renamed. And they said, okay, well, if you do it for the Lord, that's a step. You 
know, so they they wouldn't say you got to stop that, you got to stop worshiping the idols and the other things, and you got to stop the worshiping of the dead and the ancestors and the celebrations and the the, the weird things that we'll talk about, like the celebration of the day of Saint John. It's really weird stuff where it comes from. Local superstitions and all those things, they would just tell them rename that for a saint, and all of a sudden it becomes edified and holy. Does that make sense? Yeah, interesting. So what would be some examples of uh, of the Catholic Church grabbing local pagan beliefs and assimilating them into the church? One is a really funny one. There's a story, there's a celebration they do here in Mexico to this day, which is the celebration of St. John. And you would think that that's a celebration of the Apostle John, right? But it has nothing to do with him. What it was was there was an Indian who lived in a Catholic community with a Franciscan, and he was getting shot at, and there was a, a a wooden, what was it, baby, like a wooden idol, a wooden idol that he had, and the bullet hit the wooden idol instead of him. And he was so grateful that his life was fair because of the wooden idol that he took it to the Catholic priest and said, hey, you know what, this this idol saved my life. I want it blessed. I want it to holy water. And the Catholic priest said, well, um, I guess we can do that, but you're going to have to name him. And he said, we'll call him John, St. John. And he said, okay. And so he said, all right, we'll do St. John. So they did the baptism of St. John. Now, after that, what? A stick? <laughs> you can say it out loud. You can hear you, bit. A stick, okay, is what it was. It was, a, it was a wooden idol, but it was a stick that saved his life that took the bullet. So, but he said, we'll baptize it. And he said, okay. So, so the priest baptized it. And he says, okay, if you want to honor that, that wooden stick or idol, whatever it was, the log that saved you, that's fine. We'll baptize in the name, and now you're glorifying God with it. And then he said, but if you're going to baptize it, you have to do a baptismal celebration. So they threw a big party, and they went down to the water, and they were splashing water on each other, and they did a big celebration. To this day in Mexico, in the day of Saint, the celebration of St. John, they throw water at each other. That's how they celebrate it. And that's part of the festival. Well, most people don't even know the origin of that. But this is the celebration of St. John, and they throw water at each other. It's a big celebration of this stick that got hit by a bullet that an Indian was grateful of. That's, a, that's one of the really funny examples of where Catholic tradition comes from in Mexico. Now, you never hear about that in the U.S. You'd never hear about no. that in Europe. That's just like a native superstition that just got adopted into Catholic theology, and now it's become a huge festival all throughout Mexico every year. On what day has it been? June what? June 24th. They do the celebration of the Day of St. John, and they throw water at each other. So you'll be walking down the street, and somebody throw water on you out the window, you know, and just flash you with water, and they have a big old fun out of it, and everybody throws a big old party. But that's the origin of it. So that's that's one example. One of them that's more famous outside of Mexico even is uh, the Day of the Dead, where they have that skeleton. You remember that? You've seen that thing? Right, right. And there is uh, uh, actually a kids' movie that just came out that's kind of a spinoff of that subject. Oh, now, really? <laughs> by skeleton, too, are you also talking about, oh, what is it, that Santa, Santa Morarte? Yeah. Uh, the... <laughs> It's, it means uh, saint, the saint of the dead, or the dead saint. And what that, what that originated from is Incan Mayans, Yaquis, and all the other Indians that are down here, they always worship their ancestors. That was part of the tradition. The Franciscans said, okay, you can't worship ancestors, but you can pray and honor dead saints. So they just changed the name on it, and they said, okay, this is the day that we honor the saints that are dead. And so it became a big celebration of the dead. Now, they didn't, the, the weird thing about it is they didn't change any of the ritual. It was still bringing food and drink and everything that they always did to talk to the ancestors and, and messages to try and honor them and to appease them and all the things that they used to do for the ancestors. The Catholic Church just said, we'll just call them honoring dead saints. And now you're doing it for the Lord. And that's acceptable. So that's become a huge event all over Latin America, not just Mexico. But this is the way that the Franciscans would assimilate the natives into the Catholic Church, where if you're willing to be baptized in the Catholic Church, 
and go to Mass and do the sacraments and get married and all the other things. If you're willing to do the sacraments, then you become a part of the Catholic Church. And it was much more acceptable. They were much more, they were much more uh, effective um, and successful in their evangelism through that method. Because the Jesuits were like, you got to abandon everything. you got to knock off all that other stuff and become a staunch Catholic. And most of the natives were like, yeah, we're not doing that. And the Jesuits were like, well, do that or die. And that was the, that was the choice. Either do that or, or you know, we'll, we'll pop you up. <laughs> you know? So Interesting. The Franciscans took the whole different approach of, hey, we just want you in the church. We want you doing the sacraments. We want you doing the mass. So, so in one sense, you got to see the heart on it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I condone what they did. And then I'm in agreement with evangelizing people into the Franciscan branch of the Catholic Church. But they were more, far more effective and probably closer to the truth, uh, accepting the culture for what they are, and understanding that it needs to be tweaked to understand that all has to be done to the glory of God. But they took it to such a, a ridiculous, superstitious level that you could do anything. And there was no commands against worshiping the idols. There was no commands against worshiping your ancestors. And there was no repentance from sin. It was just, you know, I'm sorry for not mentioning God as I do my pagan rituals. And obviously that doesn't suffice for salvation. That makes sense? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, it, I'm curious. Do you know of any examples of, of the Catholic Church doing that very thing in the U.S. where certain customs here were adopted and pulled into the church? Um, not that I can think of. I mean, there's obvious things like St. Patrick's Day, you know, and oh, yeah. St. Nick, and there's, there's things like that where they celebrate some guys that did something and it becomes a festival and that gets adopted over where that's okay to drink a beer, you know, for, for the old St. So the old St. Patrick, <laughs> you know, and, right, right. and, and you're honoring the guy in the church and he's a saint. It's like, okay, that works. <laughs> right. It, and it turns out that, that Patrick was actually a, a, a Protestant believer, a really strong believer. And, and nowadays we, well, we, not me, but <laughs> in America, everybody gets sauced up on green beer and turns their tongue green to celebrate St. <laughs> Patrick. Yeah, that's uh, the guy who would have said, knock it off. Stop that. <laughs> what are you doing? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, okay, this is going off our our, uh, outline that we were talking about, but I'm a little curious, and and this isn't not so much uh, a pagan thing that was adopted, but something that most Americans are are a little bit in the dark on. What about Fatima? What what happened there? This this whole idea of Mary coming down and speaking from the clouds. Do you know anything about that? Well, I mean, there's tons of appearances of Mary here in Mexico, and the Guadalupe is the... She's Mary of Mexico, the Virgin Guadalupe, and she's like the all of Mexico. I mean, all from the politicians, presidents, all the way down, um, the Virgin of Guadalupe, which is an appearance of Mary, supposedly. Um, that's what that's what they honor, and they say this is Mary giving favor to the country of Mexico, and so they honor her as the Virgin Guadalupe, and that's all over. You can drive anywhere in Mexico, and you see the Virgin Guadalupe carved into. Um, shelves in the rock, painted on the mountainsides, in uh, in little you know altars and little all the places they've got all the churches and pay tribute to that. She is the patron saint of Mexico, and that's a, an appearance of Fatima, an appearance of Mary. Hmm. And does she have a role in salvation? Then, well, here's where it gets into understanding like apologetics with Catholics and there are there are people in in Catholicism that are there by tradition that really know nothing of Catholic doctrines they're Catholic because their family's Catholic and you just are you know and they go to the mass and they do the other things just because it is um, and then there's Catholics who probably understood like the first communion the catechism of the the essentials of the gospel and but the Catholic Church teaches from that point on, you need to do good works in order to maintain, and we'll talk about that, you know, we have it on the outline to talk about saved by grace, but they're, t- they're basically told, do good works to maintain your salvation, you know, and you need to, they use the verse in, uh, I believe it's Corinthians verse, or Philippians verse, says, fill up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, and that's why we continue to suffer and, and to do all the things and have to do penance and all that to fill up that as what is lacking, 
in the sufferings of Christ, which goes completely against the whole idea of what Jesus said at the cross. It is finished. There's nothing lacking in the sufferings of Christ. You know, there's something lacking in the world persecuting Christ. That's still being filled up, and that's what Paul's referring to. But the Catholic Church takes that that passage and they say, Christ is lacking in his sufferings, and we have to suffer also for our sins. So, when it comes to uh, kind of get back on point, um, I lost told my train of thought. I, yeah, I'm big on rabbit trails, so forgive my ADD. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah, I, I run off on many rabbit trails myself. Um, yeah, so, okay, and, and so... Um, and I think we're going to come full circle around to talking about uh, understanding um, how to communicate grace to a Catholic. I think that was the direction you were starting to go there. It was Mary. Talking about Mary, what role does she play? Well, in the Catholic Church officially, the official Catholic doctrine is that she's co-redemptrix. And that her part that she played was when she said, let it be done unto me as you, as you say. That's part in salvation. And they argue that if she hadn't said that, it wouldn't have happened. Well, we can easily debate that with Zacharias because he was told, you're going to have a son and he's going to do this. And he said, I don't believe you. And they said, we don't care. You're just, you're just not going to talk for a while. But it's still going to happen. So same thing would have happened with Mary. If she would have said, I don't believe you, the angel would have said, okay, well, you're talking to suck the roof of your mouth like your uncle. And But it's still going to happen because God's going to do his will. You know, Christ was coming and that was it. But they say that's her role in the salvation is that she said, let it be done unto me according to your will. So they say based on that, she played a role in our salvation, and they've actually exalted her to the point of co-redemptrix. Now, if you tell the average Catholic on the church, on the street that, they have no idea about that doctrine. Even here in the U.S., the majority of them have no idea that that's official Catholic doctrine. So. And so, okay, so we were talking on the phone about how to witness the Roman Catholics in Mexico, and you kind of blew me away because I didn't realize there were that large of, of differences in, in, you know, tactics, how you actually communicate right. to a Catholic in Mexico. Um, elaborate on that. How How... Is it, you know, you know, how is the typical American approach to evangelism to Catholics in Mexico? And I guess anybody in Mexico versus how you're supposed to do it there. Right. Well, um, I mean, in the culture of the U.S., confrontation is fine. Debate is fine. Um, even on a first, first time attempt, when you could talk to somebody to confront them about their beliefs and values in a brief conversation, it's almost a challenge. And they, that's accepted. Here in Mexico, there's such an emphasis on respect for the individual and relationship that if you come up in your very first conversation, you just confront the person like, you know, the way of the master. Now, I get that that's, a, that's effective in many ways. To, in order to show a person that you're good, um, your idea of good is not God's idea of good. And I get that approach. The thing is, you don't have to argue that with a Catholic because they already get that. I mean, they're taught day in and day out on a weekly basis that they're not good enough. They know that. When they say, are you good enough to get into heaven? Then they say, I hope so. But in their mind, what they're thinking is, yeah, after probably a few years in purgatory and a whole bunch of suffering, because I'm really not a good person. This is the whole idea of Catholic theology, is you live under guilt. So you don't even have to go that route with them. The way the Master's already been done um, by entering into Catholic Church. They already know that Jesus is the only one righteous. They're sinners. They need to be saved by grace. They need forgiveness. So you don't have to debate that with them. So if you take that approach and they say, well, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Most people just out of machismo and, you know, kind of <laughs> self-assurance will say, yeah, well, I hope so. I mean, not many people, even in the U.S., if you say, are you going to go to hell? How many people are going to say no? Not many. You know? So... You say, are you going to go to heaven? Well, yeah. Well, what's the criteria? Well, I don't know. I just hope I do. That's the reality of it. And their answers might not be what they really believe. Their answer might be something along the lines of, well, yeah, I think I'll go to heaven. That's really what they're saying. I hope I am. <laughs> I hope I'm going to go there. But if they really believe that, that, yeah, I'm good enough to go to heaven. If you dig down deep and you really pry into it, you'll probably find out most people will say, I hope I am. 
because in reality, I get that I'm not perfect. I get that I've made mistakes. And yeah, I get that heaven is perfection. So I'm hoping God finds a way to be let me in. So I think you have to dig deeper than just the patent questions and respond to the to their answer to it and show that that doesn't make any sense. you got to dig deeper. In Mexico, because it's relational, um, the best approach is to understand from an apologetic perspective that most of the work has already been done. You don't have to debate with them about the existence of God. They already agree with that. You don't have to debate with them about the Trinity, the authority of the Bible even. They believe that. They have no problem with that. You can quote scripture from them and they'll say, oh, yeah, I believe that. That you tell them, yeah, when the Catholic Church teaches this, they'll say, oh, and then the instincts kick in. It's like, oh, yeah, but the Catholic Church says that, then it must be right. That's where the instincts kick in. But you don't have to debate with them all these things. The thing with the Catholic here in Mexico is they need to understand the finished work of the cross. That's really my understanding more than anything else. It, they think it has been complete. They think there's still work and suffering and penance that has to be paid. And it's just a misunderstanding of the fulfilled work of Christ. What actually he did on the cross. So I think in our experiences, when we approach a Catholic in Mexico, when we've done it with evangelism in the past, we'll go in there, share the gospel with them, and they'll agree with everything we say. And we'll tell them you're a sinner, and they'll agree with that. And we'll tell them, you know, you know you're not going to heaven without salvation in Christ. And they'll say, yeah. They'll say, do you want to go to heaven? Well, yeah. Do you want to be sure that you're going to heaven? Well, yeah, I want to be sure. Would you like to pray and ask Jesus to love and make him Lord of your life right now? Well, yeah, I'd love to. And they'll do that every week. We have evangelism trips with hundreds coming out. Our church is like 15,000. And we've sent groups onto evangelism that my wife and I coordinated. And we're literally hundreds of people going out. And we've had hundreds of people accept Christ in one weekend. Hundreds all over the cities. And we come back six months later and maybe we're in the church. And that made us kind of rethink and say, okay, what are we doing wrong? So we had to rethink a lot of things. Hmm. And so, yeah, let's talk about that. The, the do's and don'ts of witnessing to somebody in Mexico. What does that look like? Well, I would say don't assume that you're talking to a person um, don't assume you know whether the person's saved or not. Don't assume just because they're Catholic that they're not saved. Because there's a huge, there's a huge number of Catholics that understand. You got to remember the first confession and communion and the catechism they first go through. All they don't teach them all the other stuff about Catholicism. They teach them the gospel. That's it. They teach them the basic essentials. That's your first communion. And you go in front of the priest and you say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you take the communion for the, for the remission of sins. And you say, yeah, I want to partake in the body of Christ to die. They get that. I, in, in my experience, there's a huge number of Catholics that understood that and then got derailed on their walk afterwards because they're being pulled after what after that, that wasn't sufficient. So does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. The, it, it, is is your cable loose or something? You're, we, I'm having a lot of, um, well, it's, it, there's a lot of feedback or something like your voice is really, it almost sounds like it's a bad internet connection, actually. It could be. I mean, I'm, I'm on a 4G network on a wireless card in Mexico. <laughs> so there could be a storm between us and Colorado that's causing some kind of disruption. Um, who knows? So it could be. I mean, I'm not in the, the best best area for technology. So yeah. we are, the school that we have is very rural. We're way outside of the city. So but I have the best experience. So. All right. Well, so, no worries. Yeah. I know it's not the best quality, but hopefully they'll be able to understand it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um getting back on track here um, what would you say the most important things you would want to say to a Catholic um, and, and what types of things would you want to communicate to them well the first thing you want to do is find out where they're at you want to find out if they're a traditional Catholic or whether there's a possibility they're a Catholic whether they understand the gospel enough to be saved yet they've been told you have to do good works for salvation and what I, my experience and what the scripture teaches in Hebrews is the letter kills the spirit the law 
and they're being taught you have to do good works in order to maintain your salvation and it's not sufficient. Well, based on scripture, that means it kills the spirit. So, um, from the people that we've talked to here, the friends that we know that are former Catholics, from their, even from their own testimony, they understood the gospel and then they just kind of got into the tradition. But when they fully understood what it meant to be saved by grace through faith and the completed work of the cross and what Christ actually did and how it applied, they, they said, it's like my, my eyes were open and a veil was lifted. And I just, I just understood it. And it just, and these are the guys that are like taking off in the church as like hardcore evangelists, pastors that just have this zeal for the Lord that's mind blowing. And I, I, I compare it to like a, a five year old kid wants to grow, but their growth is stunted for 20 years. And then finally that growth that's stunted for 20 years is removed and they just shoot up and now they're six foot seven and want to play basketball ball and ball. Everything they couldn't do when they were short. You know, this is like the Catholic who got chopped right at the, at the bit at the beginning. So you want to find out whether the person you're talking to is a traditional Catholic, whether they're just Catholic by tradition or whether they get it and they want to know more about God, they want to honor God, they just don't know how. They're being taught all these methods that don't satisfy. They've been taught all these things that don't function. So you want to find out which one they are first. And if they're one that does is seeking after God and is just a non-functional Christian, <laughs> then, it's a, then it's the thing about apologetics. It's about teaching them correct doctrine. It's about training them up and discipling them rather than converting them. It's about teaching them on good doctrine. And you see these people just take off for the Lord. If it's not, if it's a traditional one, well, then you, you hit the gospel and you go into the fundamentals. And you just go back to square one and say, hey, we need to talk about who Jesus is. You know? And you don't have to debate them over, debate them over those things. You need to talk about the, what the cross completed. Again, it's still the gospel. You know, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, what if what if uh, you didn't have a whole lot of time? It was a, one of those one time encounters. Maybe you're sitting next to somebody on an airplane, or or you know you you run into them at the mall or something like that. Uh, what would that encounter look like? Um, well, the simple questions would be, you know, try and find out where they stand. You know, bring up the throw God in the conversation somewhere and see how the response is to it and find out where they stand with it, and say, oh, you're a Catholic, huh? You say, you know, I, I have a lot of friends, and, you know, some of them are, I would consider traditional Catholics, or just Catholics because their whole family is. But I think there's some that really understand who God is. Where would you put yourself? You know, pull them on the question, where would you put yourself? And they, the ones that are traditional, I'll be honest with you, they have no problem saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of Catholic just because my whole family is. They're really open about it. They just, yeah, my, oh, my whole family's been Catholic, so I'm Catholic. The other ones will come out and say, oh, no, I love the Lord. And I say, cool, awesome. You love the Lord. So let me ask you a question. How long have you been in the Catholic Church? Oh, well, you know, since I was nine years old. And you've done catechism and you've done the sacraments. And yeah, yeah, you know, I've been faithful with that. And it's like, okay, so you've been in that long. How much have you grown? Ask them these confrontational questions like that that are not really glaring, but it's like, is this helping you? Is it really working for you? Because the people I know, and you can go back to the examples of the people I know, you know, I know I have a lot of people who are in the Catholic Church for a long time, and their biggest thing is they never really grew because they never really studied the Bible. They never dug into it and understood what salvation was all about. And these are friends of mine. And when they finally understood what it was really all about and they started digging into it for their own, these guys are on fire for the Lord. So, you know, that's, that's the reason I asked the question, because I'm curious. You know, I, I haven't really met many who love the Lord and everything, but they just haven't grown. You might throw it into that conversation. And then you put the ball back in their court by, you know, asking them some probing questions about where are you at with that? You know, because, you know, we do a lot of studies. I said I work with a lot of people who are former Catholics. We work in, obviously, we work in Mexico. I tell them I'm a missionary here in Mexico. Now that that's what a short conversation might be, even though it's a one-time confronting thing. You still find out what it is, but what I find is that that kind of seeds. Because they're, if they're really seeking after the Lord, then just that planting the seed of here's where, 
here's where some of my friends who've been Catholics and they just took off of the Lord, that's going to stir up a desire in a form. And say, hey, you know what? I would love to keep in touch with you. I know it's a one-time thing, but here's my number. Here's our internet. Here's our webpage. Get a hold of me. Get a hold of me because I'd love to talk with you. You're going down to Guadalajara or wherever if I just bump into them on something. But I'd love to have a, I'd love to have a coffee with you. I'd love to have dinner with you. Have you over to our house and talk and find out more about you. So I, you really want to push to try and emphasize the relationship with them. So one-time encounters can be the beginning of a lasting friendship. Um, they shouldn't be one-time encounters if you can if you can avoid it. If you have a divine appointment with somebody, don't just write it off as a one-time encounter, share the gospel, and hope they're good. No, try and build a relationship. Share your contact with me. Use my phone number. I'm super scared of that because, oh, okay, I'm not going to give out a phone number to somebody I don't even know. Why not? It's just the Lord. You know? Where's your worry? If you're doing the Lord's will, where's your worry? Where's your concern? Give out your number. Say, call me. Let's talk. Let's get to know. I want to get to know you better. And that's what I'm here for, so find out about Mexico and see what we're now. So, that would be kind of a Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Now, uh, also, and as we were talking on the phone last week, um, you mentioned that Roman Catholics have, you know, a lot of the same terminology that we use, but they have different definitions. And one of them you really keyed in on was uh, saved by grace. When when we say we're saved by grace, uh, we believe that it is it, it's by grace through faith, and and it is not by any type of a work that we could do. What does a, a Catholic believe when they say that? <laughs> well, they would believe that we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. Otherwise, they'd be unorthodox and heretical. So they would agree with the terminology, and that's even a fish Catholic doctrine. We are not saved by works. And they would even argue that we're not maintained by our works. What they say, or what a Catholic thinks when they say saved by grace, is that we're brought into the kingdom by grace, by God's grace, but we maintain that and we continue to suffer for that by continuing graces, which are the seven sacraments, uh, which is the communion, first confession, marriage, um, and the uh, four ones. So these are the sacraments. They call these graces because these are methods that God's given us, according to Catholic theology, I'm not saying I agree with it, okay? But they say that these are methods that God's given us in order to attain to our salvation. It's purely by His grace. It's not anything that we deserve. It's not anything that we've done. But if we participate with God in these graces, that we will be saved by those graces. So it's a, it's a really, it's semantics. So you have to go deeper than just saying, you know, you know, we're saved by grace through faith, and by works. I'll say, oh yeah, yeah, we believe we're saved by grace. I say, but you have to do good works, and then you get into an argument on semantics, and now you're not even in their head anymore. You're talking our terminology. You know, we'd be talking our terminology in their, with their wording, and they're totally in, in agreement with the wording, but not in agreement with our definition. And so how do we communicate the biblical version of saving grace to them? Um, well, again, it goes back, and this is why I keep emphasizing, it goes back to the finished work of the cross. Because if it's anything that we have to do afterwards in order to be saved, then by definition, we're trying to earn our salvation. So, I mean, you can dig deeper if you have time. You can dig deeper into the definition they have for it and the logic of it and get into a, kind of a little bit of apologetics on that and say, okay, so if you do the sacraments, does God owe you salvation? If you do those, ask them that other question and leave it open and see what they say. If you do all those sacraments, God salvation because you did the sacraments. And that'll pop the question on them. Or you can ask them on the other side, you can say, okay, what if you didn't do the sacraments? Would you be saved? I thought we were saved by grace and not by works. It's like, well, okay, well, no, the sacraments are graces. Okay, great. But in those graces, you have to work in those. And so you really have to pick on the terms and get into detail on that and dig in a little bit from a logical perspective and say, it's the same thing. You want to try and expose the fact that what they're saying are graces really works. That this is the whole concept. And you can pick them to Romans. 
uh, Romans four and five, or some of the best chapters on that, where it starts where it starts talking about God owes no man anything. And you could say it's interesting because what you're talking about seems very similar to what Paul had to deal with in the Roman church with the Jews. Because they were saying you were saved by grace through faith by works, but you had to continue that relationship and be sanctified by good works. And they would even agree that it's not by works, it's by grace, but this is what Paul combated, and so these chapters specifically deal with that topic. So this is where I take a biblical approach and maybe take them into the passage and say, hey, let's talk about this sometime. Let's go through these. And I'm curious to hear what you think about what these passages say and how does this apply. Because for me, it sounds like you're telling me the exact same thing that Paul says is wrong. So I need to know how it's different. I really want to know how is this different than what he's talking about. So let's work through these chapters and see what it says. You know, and maybe continue, continue study at that point. That's really good. Um, well, um, it, it, at this point, guys, if you wanted to ask any questions, this would be a good time. We've got we've got a little bit of time left. How many of you guys have questions? Everybody say hi, by the way. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> Here. They're really, really quiet, so. But they've worked hard all day in the hot sun, so. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have questions, comments? Would I take the same approach for a Roman Catholic in the United States? Probably not. Um, because Roman Catholics in the United States, I think, understand more about Roman Catholic theology than a typical Catholic here. I could be wrong, but Catholics that I've met in Latin America know very little of anything about Roman, Roman Catholic theology. But Irish Roman Catholics, oh, they're staunch on it. You get an Irish Roman Catholic, and all of them, they know all about you. Know, the the Pope, and you know, all the other things. And I go back to Revelation with uh, the distinction, Thyatira. That's pretty much what everybody agrees is the description of the Catholic Church. There's those that know the doctrines of Satan in the Catholic Church, and there's those that don't. Those that know, they know better. So you can take an approach to where, okay, now you've chosen works over grace. You've chosen the Catholic Church over the Scripture. You've chosen the authority of the Pope over the revelation of Jesus Christ. You've chosen those things. And that's where, and even in the United States, you can be more direct and confrontational, and it's not offensive. It's not going to paint a bad picture of Christianity. The biggest problem I have with taking such a confrontational approach in Mexico, Mexico would be the reputation that it gives to the Church. Because if you take that direct approach... They're going to walk away saying, those Christians are rude, I want nothing to do with them. They're offensive, they're disrespectful, they're rude, I'm done with them. I would never get into that church. Because it's so against the cultural expectations of Mexico. So, yeah, I would take a very different approach with anybody in the United States versus anybody here in Mexico. Here it has to be relational. Relationship. Really good question, <laughs> I don't. I don't know. First of all, what? Why do you um, The the question was uh, the rosary and why do why do Catholics even do that? This is uh, Tom, who's who. What he says is he's not very familiar with the Catholic Church at all. So, what he's asking about is why do they do the rosary? My wife's actually good at that one. Why would they do the rosary? She's been Christian too long. She was a catechism teacher for before she became a Protestant. <laughs> it's not from Scripture, and you got to remember the Catholic, the Catholics. Church tradition is equal to Scripture. Church tradition is equal in Scripture on authority. That's what they believe. So anything that's been passed down through Catholic tradition has just as much authority as the Scripture. So when the Pope says that this is a way to honor Mary and Hail Mary full of grace in order for her to intercede for you and ask her your prayers and to ask her to intercede to Jesus for you, this is what the rosary is. You do the Hail Mary full of grace, right? So that's honoring Mary so that she will intercede for you with Jesus. That would be the official reason for it. Yeah, but like we were talking about, that we have to be careful because in their mind, and in their heart, they're not worshiping idols. 
because they don't see it as that. You know, so we have to look at that heart condition. They don't see it as worshiping or not. It'll be awesome. Do what you worship, right? Only the ones that are Catholic by tradition will say yes. The other ones would say, no, we revere her and we honor her. The same as we do a star or an athlete or anything else, we give her honor and we revere her as the mother of Christ or the mother of God. Which if Christ was God, then I get the point, you know? <laughs> yeah, she was the mother of the incarnate God. So I have no problem with that. We don't need to debate on semantics on those things and say, oh, how could she be the mother of God? Okay, she was. <laughs> God became flesh and she was, and she gave birth to the, to the Son of God. Okay, so those are just picking picking points for unnecessary arguments. You know, from their perspective, the majority of them would say, no, we don't worship Mary. Now, we have run into quite a few Catholics who, when we kind of confirm them on, we had a friend of ours who introduces the one lady who's a Catholic, and um, we talked with her for a little bit, and she basically said, I'm not leaving the Catholic Church because I, I worship Mary. I'm not going to stop worshiping her. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're not Christian. <laughs> That's our thoughts. And, you know, my friend was asking, what do you think? Just say, yeah, she's not Christian, bro. You know, does that make sense? Mm. What he was saying, Tom was saying again, that maybe it's good for us to kind of touch on what do we agree to agree to disagree on? Well, what do we have to mutually agree on in order to say we have the same belief? Oh, well, in order to say we have the same belief, it's the essentials of the gospel. Yeah. Um, that Jesus is God, second person of the Trinity, died on the cross for our sins, or saved by grace through faith. He resurrected from the dead, rose three days later, you know was buried, resurrected. These are the essentials almost everybody agrees on. And we're saved by grace through faith and not by works. They understand that by letter and by terminology and by catechism, by phrase or doxology, they get that and they agree with that. But I would say the one aspect of that that they don't understand the implications of, and this is even a backsliding Christian who's in the Catholic Church, what they don't understand the implication is, you're saved by Christ through faith and not by works. Why? Because of what Jesus did on the cross. I think the best thing to focus on is Jesus died on the cross for my sins. What does that mean? Because that is the heart of the gospel. If we don't understand what it means for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, if we have different definitions of that, then we disagree on the gospel. And most of them Amen. believe that from the beginning. There's a big chunk of them. I wouldn't say most of them, but there's a big majority of them um, that maybe believe that from the beginning at the early catechism, and maybe that spoke to their heart at that moment where that's all they were taught was Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you're a sinner and you need his salvation and he paid for your, paid for your sins. And they say, I like that. I believe that. I'm good with that. I'm accepting that. And then they say, now you have to do good works. And right away that conflicts with what Jesus did on the cross. You have to do good works in order to be saved in the end. And it's interesting because that can cross over lines into things even like lordship theology. So there's a lot of similarities with that. So we have to be careful with those things. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, another question here. So where does it come the uh, praying and worshiping of the saints? Um, well, as I said, they don't agree with worshiping the saints, and they don't. What they call praying to the saints would be the same thing that we call having our asking our pastor to pray for us. This is what they view. They believe that saints have more access to Christ than we do because they've died, they've gone through purgatory, they've been purified, and now they have direct access to Jesus, so they pray to them. Now, here in Mexico is where it gets into superstition, where... They pray to all kinds of saints, and when something happens, whatever saint they happen to have praying at the time now becomes their patron saint, because that saint was responsible for the good thing that happened to him. That's just superstition. That's like a baseball player who hits a home run, and so he doesn't change those socks for the next five weeks, hoping that he's going to get another home run, because he was wearing those socks. Maybe that was what made it happen. You know, this is... Mexican Catholicism and why there's so many superstitions and so many I mean most people don't know every day of the year is named after a saint every day of the year there's a saint for every day of the year you look at a Mexican calendar and every day has a saint such and such saint such and usually you name your kid whatever they were born on that day because that was a saint for that day 
And that's the majority of why they're named that way. But, you know, there are so many saints here because you just throw them out there and, you know, when something good happens, whatever saint you happen to be praying to, hey, that's the one you want to give credit to. It really hasn't progressed much from Indian superstition. Where when the tree, the bullet hit the tree instead of you, you start honoring that tree because it saved your life. It's just life that happens, and whenever something good, they connect it with a saint. And they think, well, that saint did this, and now when something else good happens, because they're constantly praying to saints, it's, it's not even logical, because from that perspective in reality, they don't attribute all the bad things that happen to the saint. You know? That, oh, that's my own fault. You know, bad things happen because I'm not praying hard enough, and if I pray hard enough, and I pray hard enough, and I pray, and then something else good happens in their life, they go, oh, okay, I'm praying hard enough now. Exactly. It it really is. There's a lot of similarities with it. And the reason is because the similarities in background. Hinduism is pantheism. The worship of nature, the worship of that God is within, right? So is it pantheism or pantheism for Hinduism? Pantheism. Okay. So I forget which one's which. Buddhism is one, pantheism and the other one's Hinduism and pantheism. So if you, uh, it's the same. The same origin is worshiping nature. When everything, anything good, whenever anything good happens, you just attribute it to whatever natural was in the moment, and now you have a new god. That's why the Hindus have billions of gods. What's well, the same thing, Indians? That's why they worship all kinds of things in nature, because when something good happens, wherever you happen to be and whatever you happen to be doing, you attribute it to that. And you worship nature for what they did. And with Franciscan, all you did is add a saint to that. You just throw a saint name on it, now you're praying to a saint who's the saint of your family who protects you because your kid got better. Every time you pray to that saint, your child recovered from the flu. You know, this is the origin of it. They don't worship them. And we shouldn't assume they do because God looks beyond just what the actions are and he does look at the heart. And if in their mind nothing is comparable to God, then we can't honestly say they're worshiping saints and they're worshiping idols because in their mind nothing is comparable to God. For the majority of Catholics, there are some, however, who put Mary on the pedestal or they'll throw the Pope on the pedestal or they'll put the Catholic Church on the pedestal. But a huge majority of them the Catholic Church, the only reason it's put on the pedestal is because it is the expression of Christ on the earth, in their mind. So you have to dig deeper into the heart. You have to find out, where's your heart at? Are you really seeking after God? And if you are, then you can come to Him with the discipleship truth of how to grow in a relationship with Christ and how to understand your security in Christ, how to understand what He's done for you on the cross, how to, how to wrap your head around the finished work of the cross and what that means. And how it's no longer I have to earn God's favor and I have to ask somebody else to pray for me. I have direct access to the throne. My favorite passages to use is Hebrews. What if I were to tell you you didn't have to pray to a saint? What if I were to tell you you could pray directly to God? And this does go into some of those one-time encounters we were talking about earlier. If they say I pray to Mary because she intercedes for me, you could ask, what if I were to tell you, what if I could show you from the scripture you have direct access to God yourself? What if I could show you that? What if I could show you in the Bible where it says that? Would that change the way you practice your faith? Ask them and see what they say. Yeah. Amen. So, so anything else, brother? Oh, okay. Uh, you touched on a little bit in Revelation, talking about the church way to see how it's believed in the Roman Catholic Church, mm-hmm. uh, and then also on, and I believe it's in the same scripture, uh, about how the children, I think you said, Jezebel, or yeah. the, yeah, yeah, the, the children church. of Jezebel. Would you uh, just elaborate on that some more? Um, well, the, in Revelation, it talks, the question was, in, in Revelation, when it talks about the church of Thyatira and most degree, it's the Catholic Church, it fits the timeline, it fits the history, it fits the description. Um, there's two types of people that I mentioned earlier. There's Jezebel and the children of Jezebel who teach Christ's children 
to commit fornication and idolatry. Okay? They teach them to do these things. And then there's those who don't know the depths of Satan. So there's two different classes. What I see in the Catholic Church is two different classes. So from my understanding, what I take it as is the one who knows better falls into the other category. That would be Pope, Cardinal, Priest, all the way down to the leaders, the ones that know better. The ones that are told, do you agree to honor and have faith in the Catholic Church above all things? They have to take that vow to be a priest. Um, not without getting, you know, without getting into my story and my background. I got saved in prison. But in prison, we used to, we used to work at a... Um, a I worked in the the Protestant chapel, and I used to go over to the Catholic chapel all the time for months and months and months, and I used to talk with the Padre. And I was, I was trying to evangelize him. He didn't know it. But I was going over to him all the time asking questions about the Catholic Church. And one of my questions to him one day was, if the Catholic Church were to tell you to stop worshiping Jesus and to worship Mary, would you? And he said, well, yes. I said, why? He said, because that would be the voice of God. And I said, oh, interesting. And he said, would you? I said, absolutely not. No way. There's no way I would do that. I mean, God doesn't contradict himself. And so we got into discussion on that. But it helped me understand from the priest's perspective, they have taken a vow to follow the Catholic Church no matter what. Over and above everything that the Bible teaches. Now, if you ask the average Catholic on the street, if the Catholic Church told you to stop worshiping Jesus and to only worship Mary, would you? The majority of Catholics would say no. No. And they would say they never would. They said, but what if they did? Well, they never would. Well, that tells you if they did, they'd question it big time. You would have a huge falling away in Catholicism of people who say no, including the Jesuits, who <laughs> are followers of Jesus, supposedly. <laughs> the Jesuits were like, no! <laughs> so, yeah, I would I would ask that question. But that's a good, that's the distinction between the two. The ones that know better are the children of Jezebel, who says, yeah, I'm going to punish them for what they do to my people. But the other ones are the ones that don't know any better. Okay, we're going to go ahead and stop right there. Uh, friends, that's that's Robert Lawrence. Again, the website, banadecristo.com, B-A-N-A-H-D-E-C-R-I-S-T-O.com. Next week, we're going to be talking to Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, I've never heard his name pronounced, believe it or not. Uh, but he is a creation scientist. That one is going to be good. Uh, it's already recorded and uh, yeah, excellent. So don't miss that. Also, you know, I mentioned this once. I probably should mention it again. I should probably mention it a few time, a few more times. But uh, I used to uh, let you guys know once in a while that if you wanted to donate, you could send it to a particular PO box. But friends, uh, I I shut that POB uh, PO box down. Uh, I don't want tithes, at least not at the moment. Uh, the Lord is blessing me. I'm doing fine. Uh, so if you have been listening to some of the older podcasts, yeah, that's in there, but I shut that PO box down. Uh, I'm doing just fine. And the Lord is taking care of us. We don't need any tithes. This ministry is, it's free. It's all for you guys. Uh, and my treasure is somewhere else. <laughs> And having said that, uh, I, I, am, I just signed up for a missions trip in another country. I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to say anything about it or not because uh, it is a country where <laughs> I could disappear <laughs> if I say the wrong thing. So uh, maybe I shouldn't tell you exactly what I'm up to. I don't know. I need to talk to some people about it. But uh, whatever the case... We're going to do some really cool stuff. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be about two weeks. Um, the, the only thing is I have to come up with a, a, about $3,500 to pull it off. And again, like I just said, I don't accept tithes, but I could uh, use your prayers. So, uh, you know, I, I, 
I would cover your prayers there. Uh, pray that the Lord does help us come upon those funds, which really, honestly, is not that much in the ultimate scheme of things. And also pray that God protects me during this journey. Uh, my father is going to go with me on this trip, which is the coolest thing ever. I'm, I'm very excited about this. This is going to be such a neat time, uh, but I'm also a little nervous. Uh, I, I should be placing my trust in the Lord, um, but and I'm sure everything is just, I mean, just going to be, everything is going to be just fine, but I can't help but feel a little bit nervous about this trip. Yeah, it's going to be two weeks. It's going to be in October. So you'll know when I go dark for two weeks in October, you'll know why. Uh, I may still try to post while I'm out there. I have no idea how that'll work. Maybe I can prepare my podcast before I leave and have my wife post them while I'm gone. Uh, that might work out. We'll see how everything pans out. Uh, you know how things like that are when you you come up on a big trip like that. Everything is total insanity and busy you know, going right up to it. And so who knows? Will I even have time to do that? I don't know. But whatever the case, please pray for me. I do covet your prayers. Um, this is going to be crazy. <laughs> so anyway, uh, with that, yeah, friends, we will see you next week with Dr. John Sarfati. And with that, I love you guys. And well, I'll see you next week. <laughs>